0: Hello, my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with
1: Will Sloan.
0: And today on The Important Cinema Club, we're getting very intellectual because we're talking about Jean-Luc Godard. Now, this is a subject that me and Will have talked about probably since the first
1: day that we've met. I feel like actually almost every single time I see you, it eventually comes back to Godard. And I'd, I'd like to know, what is your relationship with Godard? Well, Godard, for me, is something that
0: I only really discovered in college. And it's funny that I'm not saying I discovered him. I'm saying it's something that I discovered. (laughs) Because his body of work was so, like befuddling to me it always seemed like the cool thing that you needed to know if you wanted to be intellectual when it comes to cinema
1: sure I mean people everyone he he's a undeniably very important filmmaker uh, people swear by him uh, he a lot of gifts from his movies look good on people's tumblr pages
0: and it was recently his birthday I believe his 85th birthday and ah. the tumblers were all over the place most from breathless or like quotes from him saying like I am addicted to cinema yeah. which is funny because it's something that hasn't been the case Since like
1: cinema is truth, twenty four frames per second, which I don't actually know what that means. (laughs) Uh, He he's like maybe second only to Andy Warhol for like out of context, meaningless aphorisms.
0: And for this podcast, we actually watched two of his films, which were two or three things I know about her and Hail Mary. The reason that I picked these two, for one, I hadn't seen them. Two or three things comes within his golden period, which is during the 60s. While Hail Mary is one that I actually read about a lot because it was supposedly very controversial when it came out.
1: I read today that when it showed at Cannes, somebody actually uh threw a cream pie in Godard's face like during the press conference or something, which I'm like I'm generally in favor of Godard getting a cream pie in the face, but And
0: for Hail Mary, it being controversial was mostly because of its subject matter, not because of the film. Because anyone who was probably Catholic who saw the film would have fallen asleep almost instantly.
1: (laughs) You know, the the Pope himself denounced uh, Hail Mary. He Uh, did? He led, like, an extra prayer vigil to repair the damage to Mary's name, and... Godard actually tried to get the movie uh, withdrawn from Rome, and he wrote a letter to his distributor, which I'd like to read uh, because it tickled me so much. He says, it's the house of the Pope, and if the Pope doesn't want a bad boy running around in his house, the least I can do is respect his wishes. The Pope has a special relationship to Mary. He considers her a daughter, almost.
0: So what is your relationship with Godard?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's impossible to be interested in film and not be interested in Godard because... Because his movies are very much about the medium. I mean, Breathless is one of the first... uh, Sorry if this is like an incredible overgeneralization and people could point to all sorts of movies that do this before Breathless, but Breathless is one of the first movies that really takes the movies on as a subject and is really self-conscious about movies, you know, with being dedicated to monogram pictures or with Belmondo looking at a poster of Humphrey Bogart and sort of modeling himself after it. And just all the, all the experimentation did with the form, you know, jump cuts. This sounds like cinema one-on-one, but,
0: but this is the thing that we have to talk about is that like, if you start talking about Godard, Most people almost instantly feel that there's other people smarter than them looking down and going
1: like, well, you just don't understand what he's trying to say. I feel that all the time. And it's it's not just because the criticism about his work often seems as kind of like inscrutable as the movies themselves, (laughs) but also because it has this kind of... A lot of the criticism about his movies has this kind of mean-spirited tone to it, where it's like, ugh, I can't believe I have to explain this to you.
0: But even those explanations, like you said, are just baffling. Like, these, are, there's words together, <laughs> you
1: recognize them, but they don't make any sense. I have a book of his interviews, and it honestly might as well be in Greek for all I understand of it. <laughs> and
0: like that book you let me of his reviews, where oh. you're like, even there's footnotes to the review, and the editor of the book is going like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And is that just because we're not smart enough to understand? or is it because Godard is being like willfully obscure
1: I think a little bit of column a a little bit of column b Mm -hmm. probably I mean so many of his movies are so deeply rooted in the time they were made and he's obviously a very intelligent filmmaker with a broad base of references you know his films always have references to the whole spectrum of film and music and art history so when
0: two or three things you know about her and for me, this is almost like prime Godard. It's shot by, by Raoul Coutard, who shot like... Raoul breath-
1: Coutard.
0: I'm <laughs> doing by Arnold Schwarzenegger. From- <laughs> I'm probably saying his name wrong too. <laughs> uh, the guy who did *Breathless* and did basically all his like good-looking films, and it, but it's also some of the
1: later ones look good too. Come on,
0: uh, actually *Hail Mary* looks very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, this is, it's shot in uh, 235, like it looks like a movie, which is something that as Godard went further and further on to his career, he kind of takes steps away from that. Mostly because I was reading an interview with him where he's like, you know, the image is a lie. It means nothing. The image can never tell the truth.
1: Mm. Well, this Two or Three Things I Know About Her is also a transition movie for him, though, because it's the movie coming after Made in USA. It's the movie that kind of once and for all leaves behind his cinephilia for american movies you know mm-hmm. all the ones before that uh like band of outsiders breathless uh even contempt to some degree uh, have a lot of residual love and affection for american popular cinema that he developed during his years at calle de cinema whereas starting with two or three two or three things i know about her not only does it kind of leave narrative behind and take on more of an essay form but it also takes a real kind of jaundiced view of America and consumer culture and...
0: Because, like, you know Godard more than me. I know kind of, like, the broadest outlines of his career. And when, after two or three things you know about her, he really got into, could we
1: say communism? Uh, Maoism. Maoism. One might say. I, or or uh, he, he got into radical cinema mm-hmm. with a group, the Ziga Vertov group, and with his collaborator Jean-Pierre Gorin, <laughs> uh, if I could do a Justin De Clue.
0: Uh, it just came out of nowhere. I couldn't control myself.
1: Made movies that were sort of heavily didactic and heavily Brechtian and left all narrative behind. And you feel
0: like he's never really gone back to that point watching the movie? Well that he's no, made?
1: I mean he's got he's got back to if not traditional narrative cinema, at least some sort of middle ground mm-hmm. starting in nineteen eighty with every man for himself mm-hmm. now he seems to be more back at kind of an essayistic experimental form
0: do you feel like because when i first got into watching godard films my first thought was like this guy doesn't know how to make a movie just watching the way like the one that would probably fall the most within those confines would be something like breathless mm-hmm. but looking on even further into the other films it's like he's throwing a bunch of ideas but doesn't know how to present them to the audience
1: i mean i that's the way his mind works though i i, I he could probably he you probably if you put a gun to his head he could probably make a narrative movie do you
0: think so yeah I because think so. i remember him talking about made in usa and that was his attempt because i believe that's an adaptation of a donald d e. westlake novel and it kind of he said that it just got away from him and that he just couldn't do it
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I know that reports from the set always have him fighting with his collaborators and something in his personality doesn't seem very conducive to normal filmmaking.
0: And like Godard is someone that, like you said, normal filmmaking is not really in his vocabulary. Even something like Breathless, he would just make up the scenes on the day, show up and then shoot them. But that's
1: also what he probably prefers to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, A movie like A Woman is a Woman, the fact that it's a musical and none of the songs really even get past just a few a few notes like he's consciously doing that.
0: But is that a conscious um, you know, muddling of the waters because he feels that he's not confident enough to be able to make those kind of movies or is he just above that and well, that's why he does that kind of stuff?
1: I think a little Colombia, a little Colombia again <laughs> too. I mean, I think I think the fact that his philosophy in his movies is so sort of elliptical and and obscure is partly that he's experimenting with the form but he wants you to draw your own conclusions and partly the fact that I genuinely don't think he is entirely clear on everything. He saying. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, I don't really know how he directs his actors. I think the only quote I can remember is when he made King Lear which was his famous uh, film he
1: made for the Canon
0: uh, production group.
1: Famously, of course, known for their Chuck Norris and Dolph Lundgren movies.
0: But they like to invest in other, like, artistic pursuits. And King Lear may be one of his most incomprehensible films that's funded by, like, a studio. Yeah. And he, there's people like Woody Allen, um, Norman Mailer, and there's Molly Ringwald, who at one point was lying on a rock and asked him, like, well, what am I feeling here? What is supposed to be going on? And she said, that Goddard looked at her with such contempt as if she he's like, well, if you don't know what's going on, I don't I'm not going to explain it to you because you're never going to understand.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, King Lear, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to call him self-destructive because he's. King Lear is nothing if not a deliberate movie but
0: it's like giant middle fingers to the audience which
1: it seems but, but like why <laughs> I, I mean it opens it opens with the opening credits of King Lear play to a phone a, a phone message from Menahem Golan his financier kind of Chewing him out for not delivering the movie on time. Say, when is the movie? We've announced it for Khan. And that, to me, like, his defenders might say that that's, oh, he's really sticking it to the establishment or something, but I think it's kind of dickish. I mean, well, Naham Golan gave him all this money and all this freedom, and this is what he did to him.
0: Everything I've read about him, he's just like an asshole well, all the time. The, and
1: then the next scene in King Lear is a couple of takes of Norman Mailer and his daughter, because the original conception of the movie was that Norman Mailer would play a King their type and, and uh, Norman Mailer's real daughter would be the daughter and Goddard narrates it in sort of a really goofy voice saying Mailer suffered from a case of star behavior and the star behavior was the fact that Godard wanted to include some implication that there was an incestuous relationship between <laughs> Mailer and his daughter and I mean I think it's fair for Norman Mailer not want to not want to take part in that <laughs> because
0: it's crazy that Golan and Globus expected something like that from Godard because you just had to watch his movies that he had made before to know that he was never going to deliver a narrative film, yeah. which is what they wanted, which... Begs the question, is it, like, am I watching these films expecting something that I'm never going to get and that Godard has never shown any inclination that he was going to do? What are you expecting? I don't know. Maybe Breathless? Maybe that's what people, when they go see his movies, like, talking about the fact that, like, all these gifts and tumblers that appear online featuring Godard, they all
1: come from that period. Well, Breathless is, you know, if it was challenging at the time, it's not challenging anymore because all of its innovations, like the jump cuts, have been... Uh, accepted into the mainstream. Uh, the the kind of self-reflexive cinephilia is mainstream now, and the plot is easy to follow.
0: That's the one thing. Is and everyone
1: I, looks so cool.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that a lot of the Godard films that I kind of um, gravitate toward, most of the ones that came uh, before Weekend, which I guess would what you would say is the end of his audience period, I guess you can call it that. <laughs> yeah. Um, they all have mostly narratives that you can follow and characters that you can follow. So Godard can throw like a bunch of nonsense to the audience or deep rumination that he whispers over um, a scene of a coffee cup with milk and it's spinning uh-huh. endlessly. But there's still usually characters that you can go back to, even if they're, the plot never follows that kind of ABC that you would sure. expect from a normal movie. While after that, he just went completely off the rails. Well, a
1: lot of his movies in in the eighties have characters that mm. you can that you can remember, like Hail Mary, for instance, that, or Every Man for Himself.
0: Uh, but I would say even Hail Mary has more disjointed narratives than something like A Woman Is a Woman or Breathless, or even Masculine Feminine.
1: Yeah, and there's also kind of a. A sourness to his 80s work I don't say that as an insult necessarily it's just it's just there's a there's a sadness and melancholy to everything past 1980 that isn't there in the 60s work the 60s work is sort of exuberant and and fun in mm-hmm. a way uh, it is fun even like
0: two or three things that i know about her which is kind of didactic and very there's a lot of ruminations going on it's really fun to look at like yeah it's, it's, 60- it's beautiful exactly well hill mary is also beautiful but in a kind of different way a more cold and controlled way
1: well another thing that's interesting about two of the things i know about her if we're talking about it as a transition film it's the fact that even though he's very critical of consumer culture, he still makes consumer culture look beautiful. Like all of the cereal boxes or whatever, or the TWA bag, uh, look like, I guess, I mean, he must've been heavily influenced by Andy Warhol and mm-hmm. pop art at the time. And I feel like that reveling in, in the surface beauty of American consumer culture is, is gone. So even a, a year or two later,
0: instead he wants to make it like, you know, painful to watch,
1: well, I mean, I, I think there's still a lot of beauty in his later movies, but it comes mostly from the the natural world mm-hmm. rather than anything that humans have made.
0: So what do you think of Hail Mary as a movie? Because I know that you just watched it recently for this podcast, too.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's interesting. I mean, there's something about whatever people say. Yeah, I think it's interesting. That means I didn't like it. But- <laughs>
0: That's like my dad leaving a cinnamon being like, hmm, that was really weird. That yeah, <laughs> you means, like, that movie was not good.
1: <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I genuinely did find it interesting, though. Uh, uh, I mean as as a lapsed catholic mm-hmm. it's uh, i'm very intrigued by its sort of realistic depiction of what it would be like for mary to have the immaculate conception for those who don't know and i assume that's most people uh because who the hell will watch hail mary but <laughs> uh it, it's roughly about a, mo- a modern day or 1980s sort of working class girl named mary in her late teens who miraculously becomes pregnant she's working at a gas station and her boyfriend joseph drives a cab and it's about kind of her struggle to deal with this immaculate conception and her boyfriend's difficulty in trusting her that she's really a virgin and their inability or their difficulty in having a relationship that's not has no sexual component
0: and the way that you explained it is probably much more straightforward than the (laughs) way that it's presented in the film because that's like the baseline of what's going on in the movie well
1: all of godar's movies from that period it kind of looks like every scene has had the beginning and the end lopped off it Mm -hmm. so it takes a little while to figure out who mary is and who joseph is and then there's a whole other plot (laughs) about this university professor who's in teaching intelligent design, I think, to his class.
0: With a character named Eve?
1: Yeah, which I'm not... A greater man than I, I could probably figure out what he's what he's saying with that.
0: Uh, at <laughs> one point, Eve eats an apple. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, I know. Sure. I'm reading into that symbolism. Sure. And is Godard someone like Tarkovsky who's like, don't read any symbolism into my movies? I don't think
1: Godard is like that,
0: no. <laughs> because he's like, no, they're all hidden. All the hidden like little references I put in, whether the film is entertaining or not. And Hail Mary, unlike something like two or three things I know about her, is really not that entertaining to watch.
1: Uh, no, although I did find it watchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's there's lots, there's lots to look at.
0: <laughs> there's a wall that I hit in Gadar films, usually about 40 minutes in, where I'm <laughs> like, oh, God, okay, I get it. It feels like he himself is getting bored with what's well, going on. Well, I don't know. You
1: see, like I, fa- I find it watchable. There's something, if it doesn't quite work for me, and it, it might be that there's something going on at cross purposes here, I feel like he genuinely wants us to relate to the biblical story of Mary mm. and the way he depicts Mary and Joseph, you know, they're not in a fresco or, or something. They're not they're not a Bible story. They're kind of living, breathing people who we might see in our normal day to day lives. So they're not as distant as earlier representations of them might have been. But it's working at cross purposes in some way because This kind of Brechtian, uh, difficult way that he tells the story distances me from the story.
0: It would be amazing (laughs) if Godard, like, next year was like, you know, I'm just... He's gonna do like a David Lynch-style straight story (laughs) where he just makes like a narrative film. He adapts some book and he's like, there drops the mic, I can do it if I wanted to,
1: yeah. but I don't want to. I don't think he'll do that.
0: You don't think he's going to do that anytime soon? No. I-, I have hope that one day we're going to get like...
1: Contempt is probably the most mainstream movie he's ever mm-hmm. made, right?
0: Yeah, which yeah. was another one that a studio funded. I mm-hmm. think it was Joseph E. Levine who mm-hmm. made that one. And that takes place in like the Italian countryside uh, or a studio lot. St-
1: featuring Jack Palitz as a very Joseph E. Levine type producer.
0: <laughs> who wants um the screenwriter to make one certain movie and he doesn't want to yeah, and yeah. he's having Mary marital discord so as someone will who actually went to almost all of the Godard (laughs) retrospective so tiff lightbox in toronto was doing a Godard retrospective and they did a part one which was all the movies that you would expect yeah from breastless to i think
1: weekend yes
0: and then afterwards i i made jokes where i was like they're never gonna show a part two but then they did and Will went to most of them. Did
1: you feel you... Well, I went to most of the ones that I hadn't seen, which practically meant, like, all the Ziga Vertov Maoist ones. Uh, because, like, if I didn't see them then, when was I going to see them? Probably never.
0: <laughs> and what did you feel like you got out of those films, watching
1: them, like, uh,
0: so close together?
1: Uh, not not a whole hell of a lot. I mean, it's sort of interesting to see in that in that particular era, that Maoist era, it's interesting to see a guy, like, constantly hitting a wall. <laughs> And the and the varying ways he hit a wall, and the varying ways the experiment failed.
0: Do you feel like I remember? I don't remember what critic it was, but they said that like Godard is going giving more and more lessons to like an empty room that yeah. no one is listening yeah and what do you say about like people who love those kind of movies like the ones that he made in his post period or that he's even making right now because films like film socialism and goodbye to language which just came out a few years ago are difficult films right.
1: well first of all i don't know anybody who likes the ziga Vertov <laughs> era once I, w- I would go to those and it was consistently me and like 10 other people <laughs> You know, me, Bart Testa, several (laughs) others, but film socialism, you know, the thing about film socialism, I mean, it is also like a it's difficult, but it's also fairly watchable because Mm. like the images are very beautiful and the images are very loaded. And, you know, as as sort of pessimistic and cynical as Godard is, one thing that's never left him and what makes his movies watchable is his continuing delight in the possibilities of every new medium that he works in, whether it's 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter video, digital video, video, even film socialism has cell phone video scenes. Hmm. And he's constantly causing you to look at the possibilities of, of new image making technology. The thing about uh, film socialism, you know, I remember Ignati Vishnevetsky on Ebert Presents at the Movies uh, (laughs) classic, (laughs) made uh, an argument for film socialism that Godard sort of gives you the raw materials of a movie and then gives you the freedom to put it together however you want. Mm -hmm. So you'll see all these images of sort of well-to-do people on a cruise ship, and then there will be images of you know fighter jets or or news atrocity footage or whatever and uh, like i sort of feel i sort of feel like i guess there's something freeing about that and lord knows i like subtlety in movies but there's a little bit of intellectual laziness to it yeah, right it's like you he can you he can, can sort of throw all these all these loaded is loaded images at you and say what does it mean who can say <laughs> And I mean, I think if you even were to decipher some of the points that he makes in the movie, like, well, for example, in film socialism, you see a bunch of like old rich people dancing uh, on the ship and then it'll cut to fighter jets. And it's like, good one. Yeah, that, because that's the it. thing. with was
0: a lot of Godard films, especially when it, he was in his Maoist period, which was he was like saying very simple things in very complicated ways. Yeah,
1: but I think, you know, there are a lot of images from film socialism that stay with me. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of images from Tim and Eric's Billion movie that stayed with me, too, and I think that's just as creative a use of the form. (laughs) Rest in
0: peace, Robert Loggia. (laughs) So, but you think that he could be figuring out more interesting ways, and are you suspicious of people that champion his films? Like, I saw Goodbye to Language appear on a lot of critics' top ten lists. For people who don't know, Goodbye to Language was Godard's first
1: feature-length 3D film? Yes. Uh, Yeah, and I saw Goodbye to Language twice, in fact, because I wanted to make sure I I got it or didn't get it. (laughs) And is that something that,
0: like that we have problems with is that like we feel we're not getting it. Well, sometimes. I don't want,
1: I don't want to have bad faith on the part of people who put it on their top 10 list. And, and you know, again, there are lots of, I mean, there are lots of amazing things in goodbye to language, but too many of the reviews of goodbye to language seemed to sort of forgive Goddard for the fact that it was all incoherent. At
0: what or, point or, did that start though, where people are like going to give him a pass? I kind of
1: Yeah. I feel like he's been kind of like grandfather claused <laughs> in almost where it'll be kind of like, there, so many of the reviews of *Goodbye to Language* said something along the lines of, w- "Yeah, what does it all mean? Who could say you'd be best advised to sort of sit back and just let it wash over you?" And I feel like that's not good enough. <laughs> yeah,
0: there needs to be a little bit of intent. because well, like at this point, it's. I think I mentioned this last episode with Michael Bay. Is is Godard doing like an Andy Kaufman-esque
1: joke where? I also feel like. Too often people are too willing to just sort of indulge Godard in his his dumb ideas. So take Histoire du cinema. Have you seen Histoire du cinema? No,
0: I've tried to watch it. Histoire du cinema being a eight-hour opus. Yeah, about... or
1: six hours, maybe like a, a big opus about the history of cinema. People have called it sort of the cinematic Finnegan's Wake.
0: Uh Jonathan Rosenbaum may have said that at one point. <laughs> sure, why
1: not? Uh <laughs> he would, wouldn't he?
0: Yeah. If people don't know him, he's a very good critic yeah. that used to write for the Chicago. Chicago Tribune. And uh, he loves good Godard and it's funny, this is a good point of me saying that like Jonathan Rosenbaum reading his books, all the stuff he talks about, either Godard or Rivette or all these filmmakers makes me want to go like, Yes, I'm gonna this is gonna be great, I'm gonna go watch these movies and I just sit there being like, What is going on? Which was exactly the case with Iswad's cinema. Well,
1: I unreservedly like Jonathan Rosenbaum. Oh I love Jonathan but, Rosenbaum. Uh, but with His of the Cinema I mean, on the one hand, I do find it a fairly pleasurable experience to watch it because it looks beautiful and there are lots of there are lots of sort of semi-witty juxtapositions of footage and there's lots going on.
0: I have to point out that when I asked you, should I go see it at TIFF, you said, do you like colors flashing on screen? (laughs) Because
1: if so, then that's for you. I agree. Um, But... If there's a main thesis to Histoire du Cinema, and this is something that I picked up on the critical writings of Histoire du Cinema, I did not formulate this on my own. The thesis is, cinema is the art form of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Holocaust is the great tragedy of the 20th century. Uh, Cinema was not there to record the Holocaust, or to bear witness to the Holocaust in Godardian parlance. Mm -hmm. Therefore, cinema has failed in its obligations and responsibilities. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what cinema is yes and i don't think it's a i don't think it's a point that's really even worth like dignifying
0: no (laughs) but
1: lots of people seem willing to dignify it
0: well is it because they feel like they found the thematic resonance in the film so they're like yes we we got it
1: well i mean i don't want to again i don't want to have bad faith on their part it's kind
0: of like You have all these puzzle pieces that you put together and you get an image and it's an ugly image or something you disagree with, (laughs) but you made the puzzle and you worked so hard to get it. So you can't like throw that away.
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe people, uh, uh, maybe there's somebody who could do, do a defense of it because there are so many people, so many people I respect who love Histoire du Cinema. Or, you know, there are so many things in Histoire du Cinema in the first part, he makes a joke about Technicolor being used to shoot the concentration camps post-liberation and the joke is that it's the same colors that we used to shoot duel in the sun sort of saying that's you know cinema's great sin of of never capturing the holocaust properly contaminates all that goes on
0: well you know honestly not being able to take any kind of academic judgment or knowledge of theory or anything like that
1: that sounds like utter
0: bullshit to me
1: i think so but <laughs> yeah. i don't know if you disagree write, <laughs> write in. us in
0: at um, important cinema <laughs> club
1: 1900 fake street <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I have, we have an email address. Wait, we do? Yeah, it's uh, podcast at gmail.com. Oh, okay. So send us some mail if you disagree with us or, you know, you or it's just very scathing, like you don't understand emails. Since... Sure.
1: I know on my notes here, I wrote under two or three things uh, I know about her sex. Uh, and commerce. <laughs> what are your thoughts on those topics? Sex and commerce? Yeah. Ah, they just go hand in hand. Yep. T- two of my favorite things. <laughs> because
0: we didn't <laughs> actually um, talk about how during that period, Godard got also very obsessed with prostitution and yeah. that he felt that everyone was was you know, prostituting themselves, whether it be someone that was going to work or someone that was just selling their body on the street. It was all the same thing. And
1: kind of a question of can there be such thing as sex that isn't prostitution in this capitalist society that we find ourselves in? Kind of the idea that You know, in this capitalist society where we go to work and we buy things and we have sex with our lovers, like it's all on the same, it's all commodified on the same sort of conveyor belt.
0: And you know, that's an interesting question. But at the same time, like when Godard says like image is a lie, can never give truth or when he got into those kind of periods, I kind of want to take him aside and be like, man, come on, you're full of shit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like we get it. Like you did it. We get it. You don't need to make movies or continually... Keep telling us this, like we get it. Move on.
1: Try to find more interesting things to say. Well, I don't know. I mean, they they are interesting themes. They are interesting themes. Yeah, but
0: they're kind of like asking that question. Kind of answers itself. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like he knows what the end. It's like no.
1: It's all. It's also kind of interesting that he's been sort of like lamenting the death of cinema and the death of humanity as we know it kind of ever since 1967 (laughs) different different variations every new movie is a farewell of some sort
0: it's kind of like uh you know one of those religious cults who thinks the end of the world is gonna happen like the next week and And, they keep saying that it is but then when it doesn't they have to kind of scramble and try to readjust themselves and i
1: do genuinely think that like he has gotten more intellectually lazy over the years like you know in in praise of love his much celebrated attacks on Spielberg for, for making Schindler's List, which seemed to just boil down to the fact that he was an American filmmaker kind of co-opting European history, which I think is a very kind of bitter and and mean-spirited assault on spielberg i mean i mean there are lots of things you can say about spielberg but for god's sake
0: yeah well that's the thing is that like some of godard's arguments are just you know
1: nonsense like in praise of love the the subplot is that executives from spielberg corporation or (laughs) whatever it's called are buying up the memories of holocaust survivors and and you know as as i think i think roger ebert pointed out i wish i could point to a a classier critic than Roger Ebert, but as Roger Ebert pointed out, Spielberg has, with his Shoah Foundation, done a whole lot to preserve the memories of Holocaust survivors.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's get back to Godard as a person,
1: because we mentioned, you know,
0: briefly that he was an asshole. but
1: He might be nice. Yeah, he might be (laughs) nice. I've never met him.
0: (laughs) No, me neither. But... Reading about the way he interacts with people, even reading like a biography like Everything is Cinema by Richard Brody, he just comes off as a giant jerk.
1: I love in uh, Brody wrote the uh, a New Yorker profile on him circa in Praise of Love, and it might be repeated in the Everything is Cinema book about going over to Switzerland to interview him over a two-day period. Uh, he went to his home office, had a long conversation, and then showed up the next day to find that like a post-it note had been put on the door saying, Mr. Brody... Uh, our conversation never went beyond the surface level, and uh, the interview should probably be over. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Richard Brody encountered uh, Godard and his companion Emery Melville. Melville. Um, I don't know. Melville. Uh, at a, at the hotel restaurant the next night, and they were very cold to him. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So Richard Brody though is the world's biggest like Godard fan, so I don't want to misrepresent his words.
0: Do you feel? <laughs> that Richard Brody was like, But you know what Ghadar is more intelligent than me. It's my failing that I didn't reach him on that level. Uh, I think that's no Ghidar being an
1: asshole. I think so. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, because there's a inability to connect with the people that he's trying whether it be Richard Brody doing an interview or his audience he's not willing to either lower themselves to that level or make it comprehensible to a general you know viewership
1: yeah but I mean I do keep seeing Godard's movies uh, when they come out because like they do offer like genuine pleasures to me that I'm always interested in catching up with usually of the kind of visual or stylistic type.
0: I love every time a new Godard film is coming out either at tiff at Sundance everyone's like yes new Godard woo that's me and, and they've obviously never seen Seen a Godard film in the last decade? Because I remember when "Film Socialism" played, my Facebook was filled with people being like,
1: "What is this?" I this is was nonsense. I was at the uh, Ryerson Theater premiere of "Film Socialism," where there were no subtitles. I think it played at Con with Navajo English subtitles. He called it, which were like he would put three words at the bottom of the screen that were like Stalin, Hitler, genocide, <laughs> and. no matter how like no matter how long the dialogue was but it played without subtitles but then i think about halfway through i realized like you didn't even subtitles were unnecessary because it wouldn't
0: have given you anything yeah it's really the uh, juxtaposition of the images and the way they're edited and there were
1: very strong images in that movie uh
0: no you're doing a jonathan rosenbaum on me i want to go watch film socialism now. check it out
1: you'll uh, images from it will stay with you really yes will
0: i be able to make it all the way through though
1: I think you might find your endurance like being tested in the last third when it sort of becomes the found footage film festival, <laughs> you know, like, like History Cinema.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, there's something that I, I have to bring up, though, is we were talking about Godard as a person and you were like, I would love to see Godard just go to a grocery store and try to buy groceries.
1: Because he probably like talks to the cashier just in aphorisms.
0: <laughs> so you say Godard has passed the period. Like, was there ever a day where Godard was just like... Like, why is Godard the way that he is? And we can only be armchair psychologists in this situation.
1: This is something that I keep resisting episode after episode, (laughs) but keep going.
0: I keep pulling you back in to make these broad judgments that then people can latch on to (laughs) and use against you later Mm -hmm. on in time. Yeah. Where at one point he had to make this decision that he's going to be so obtuse that no one will be able to understand what he's saying. I mean, even in his Cage Cinema days, he did talk kind of that way. But he had to be personable in a way that people like François Truffaut or Claude Chabrol, like they were his friends.
1: People definitely kind of get set in their ways as they Mm -hmm. get older and they become more and more the person that they are. Just ask my grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Rest in peace. (laughs)
0: Does she have some racist prejudices? Oh, no, no, she's
1: just sort of a mean person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Some people soften though when they get older. Because my grandfather, my dad said that he was... You know, it was tough when he was younger, but as he grew older, he grew into like a almost like a very happy okay. figure. Some
1: people soften, some people get harder. I assume, <laughs> by the way, you were on Team Truffaut when the Truffaut Godard spat.
0: Oh, you mean the famous letter that Godard sent to Truffaut? Yeah. Where? Oh no, I was on Team Truffaut. Yeah, in that situation. For, yeah,
1: yeah. Me too. Even though I find Godard a generally more interesting filmmaker than Truffaut. Mm. If and, not better, necessarily. And, I, I, and if anybody
0: wants to know what that spat was about, it was you can find the letter online. It's very well widely worth publicized. reading. But it was that Truffaut made a very kind of. It's a good movie day for night, but that treated cinema as like a fun thing that a family gets together and makes. Yeah. While wow, Godard was so disgusted by that, and he just insulted the film, insulted Jean Pierre Léo, and then asked for Truffaut for some money to make his next film.
1: Yeah, and he, he made, a, he, he took a real, like, below the belt punch by saying, uh, if you were really showing the reality of film, how come you didn't show yourself sleeping with the leading lady? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Truffaut responded with this like 10 page letter, calling him out on, on having his bullshit, calling about his bullshit. And among other things, pointing out the fact that how disgusted he was that one of the Ziga Vertov era movies showed how to make a Molotov cocktail. Mm-hmm. And he also, it also had the brilliant line calling Godard, the Ursula Andress of activism. <laughs> Ooh, that's a deep cut. They, they had a, a falling out before the letter, of course, the fact that Godard was very much on the side of kind of the student protests in 1968 with Truffaut saying that actually it was the police who were kind of in the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would rather not weigh in on that issue. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, we are not informed enough. I dude. am
1: not, <laughs> not going to call judgment on a 50-year-old's uh, political dispute. <laughs>
0: Which is probably a good idea. I'm going to pull back the armchair psychologist um, yeah. for that kind of subject matter. But Truffaut was also very apolitical. Like, he didn't really like to yeah. make any decisions on that kind to of stuff. To a fault,
1: perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah. But,
0: like you said, Godard or Truffaut said about Godard, what he's saying is very, not only vague, but specific in a way that it almost means nothing at times. Yeah. But so what interests you about Godard is more of the experimentation and the thing that he brings to cinema. Yes,
1: and, and like, to a certain extent, like, what he has to say about the world. Just Mm. because whenever you see a new Godard movie, like, his movies, even though there's something sort of old man yells at Cloud about him, (laughs) his movies are still very much of their time, Yeah, you know, and this new one, Goodbye to Language... Uh, has people reading books on Kindles and has TVs on in the background with old movies playing. Uh, He's very interested in the technology and mores and politics of the time, even if his attitude seems to remain unchanged from film to film.
0: Which makes me uh, ask a very universal question, but one that has a lot of finality to it, which is, do you think... 20, 30 years from now, people will still be watching Godard films in the kind of reverent way that they do now.
1: Uh yes, I mean we're still watching Breathless in, in a very reverent way. Uh,
0: but do you think that's because a lot of the old guard are still around? They got to see Breathless when it came out and oh, they bring Oh, no, rem-
1: I mean I know lots of people who like Breathless. I like I Breathless. Like Breathless. Yeah, that- I mean that that first 10 years of his career like hmm. I don't think I don't think that'll ever. And just the fact that he's like so of such monumental importance to film history. I mean, if you were talking about the five most important directors, directors who really changed the medium. I mean, the whole new American cinema comes from Godard. Mm-hmm. Uh, French New Wave comes from Godard. All the new waves basically ever since <laughs> come from Godard.
0: So what you're trying to say is that those ten years of Godard filmmaking we will encase and put away. But then people will be like, oh, yeah, and he made other movies afterwards.
1: Well, I mean, that's how most people are with the other movies. But I I suspect there will always. But, you know, the movies ever since then have been less accessible. And I suspect there will always be a relatively small but loyal following for those movies.
0: So if you had to recommend only one after that golden period, which one would it be?
1: oh god uh well the thing is after that golden period they all have stuff i like and stuff i don't like maybe i would say two i think every man for himself a it's one of the more watchable ones (laughs) uh it has a lot of his preoccupations about you know sex and commerce and uh i don't know whatever else he's preoccupied with slow motion yes slow motion been a while since i've seen it (laughs) and it sort of encapsulates the melancholy quality that um, in it manifests itself in his work from that point on, but also the movie he made just before that, Numéro Deux. Mm -hmm. kind of towards the tail end of his experimental 70s period. Again, a very difficult movie, but one that's his most disturbing and in some ways most evocative exploration of sex and commerce. Mm -hmm. So,
0: numero duro would be your suggestion then. All right, I'm going to have to go check that one out because I haven't seen that one. Yeah, check it out. Okay, so if anyone, we should say this now at the end of every podcast, has any questions or comments, we'll read them on the air, So as it may be. Just send us an email at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. I made it really long. I suspect my
1: mom is going to write in now. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: She'll be like, I disagree about what you said about Jean-Luc Godard. My mom
1: mom is a strong, confident woman.
0: (laughs) Okay, wait.
1: Just like that voice you did.
0: (laughs) I think probably the only thing that really disappointed me about this episode is that you did (laughs) not do a Jean-Luc Godard. Imitation.
1: Well, I can do the Jean-Luc Godard imitation that I did a few episodes ago about Jerry Lewis. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll reiterate the story. Uh, Dick Cavett asked Jean-Luc Godard uh, if he found Jerry Lewis funny. And he said, oh, yes, he is very funny. But uh, <laughs> especially when he is not funny, he is more funny. And
0: we should point out that that Dick Cavett uh, interview is one of the most coherent... Interviews that Gadara's ever but done, but also
1: hard to follow. And very hard to follow. <laughs> and what's amazing is that Dick Cavett interview. It was a two-parter. That yes. was two nights. Can you imagine that happening now?
0: <laughs> that Dick Cavett. I think the first part ends was him being like, I, "I think we want to keep you a little bit longer because, yeah. uh, you know, I want to try to cr- crack you as like an egg." And that never.
1: Happens. I mean, no, no wonder Dick Cavett got canceled. I mean, can, can you imagine that up against Johnny Carson?
0: <laughs> All right. Well, my name is Justin
1: Mcleod, <laughs> and my name is Will Slav. Thanks for listening. But that sounds like I, I read it, but I mean, it's true.
0: Just start. No, sorry, I was laughing sorry. at you going. Round <laughs> <laughs> All right.